Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Diffusion, the summer series, where we'll be kicking back. And whether you're kicking back with us in Australia, where it's nice and hot, or maybe somewhere cooler a little around the world, the science is just as fabulous. Today, we'll be looking at the herpes virus and the hope of finding a vaccine. And we'll be turning up the heat with a look at global warming and its effects on our coral reefs. I am a scientist. With global warming, changes in land use and other pressures on the marine environment, Coral reefs are under considerable pressure. Darren Osborne speaks to Associate Professor John Pandolfi, who has been researching coral reefs from the past to help better manage the reefs of today. I'm joined by the Associate Professor John Pandolfi of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and the University of Queensland to talk about some research he's been doing on coral stress. Thanks for joining me, John. Thank you, Darren. Um, can you tell me first of all, uh, what is coral die-off? The way we use the term coral die-off in the research that we're doing is places where we've got clear coral mortality over a spatial scale of uh, tens to hundreds of metres on a coral reef. So what are the greatest threats to coral reefs? What causes them to die off? Among living reefs, there's what we generally refer to as the big three. And the first one is um, over-harvesting of marine resources. This commonly has led to uh, overfishing, which affects the balance on coral reefs between algae and corals. Now, algae and corals compete for space. And as you can imagine, uh, life in a big city, the competition for space can be quite severe. And if there's any tip in the scale, any tip in the balance towards the algae's favor, it occurs when we tend to fish when humans tend to take away the fish that eat the algae. And once that happens, then the algae get a competitive advantage over the corals. The second major threat would be pollution and runoff from the land as a result of coastal development. And I guess the third major threat is is more of a longer-term threat, and that's the idea of uh, global warming. And as the uh, seas warm, the the incidence of coral bleaching becomes greater and and this can have um, deleterious effects on reefs as well. Now, a lot of the work that you've been doing is looking at fossilised reefs in Papua New Guinea and the Huon Peninsula, um, which date back to 11,000 years ago. What did you find in those fossilised samples? What we did was we we visited the sea cliffs on the northern coast of Papua New Guinea where there's a series of raised reef terraces And these reef terraces are uplifted out of the water because it's a highly tectonically active area. We were able to scale the sea cliffs and make very, very detailed observations about the nature of the coral reef through time. And what we found was there were several places where we could trace a single horizon going for tens or even hundreds of meters along the sea cliffs in which all the corals died at once. There was a singular level where all the coral growth stopped at one level. And on top of that level was a layer of calcareous algae, and it had a continuous layer over all the corals that were dead, linking them all together. So where the layers actually occurred, the whole reef completely died and and vanished, but then sometime later reappeared. 
Yes. So above that layer of calcareous algae then was a bit of a, a chaotic sedimentary layer where there was no reef development. And we, we interpreted that as, as the time it was taking for the reef to recover. And then uh, above that, the corals started to come back in again. And it wasn't long before the coral reef was growing in a very similar manner as it was before the coral die off we determined that the, the recovery was well within a uh, hundred years. Was it possible to determine any particular key factor that caused the die-offs in each of those periods? Yeah, yes and no. For for a couple of them we could and for a couple of them we couldn't. And um, for the two that we could, we found evidence for, we actually found a volcanic ash layer that was associated with the, the layer of, of dead corals. So it was quite clear when we found that, that the, the corals had died because of a volcanic eruption close by. Is there anything to suggest that the damage that's occurring to reefs around the world now is happening at a faster rate than what it did in earlier reefs going back thousands of years? Oh, yes. Well, that's a good question, and I think we can only answer that in the affirmative, but I'll put a caveat on that, and that is when we looked at the time intervals um, from prehistory or pre-human to today, um, it's interesting that uh, that humans, even in small numbers, can have quite a quite a profound impact. So what lessons can we learn from what you've, your research has found? Well, I think one of the important things from this research is that we have to find mechanisms to uh, reduce the kinds of stresses that we put on reefs, or at least the return time on the stresses that we put on reefs. We have to learn to somehow mediate the, the frequency at which we're stressing coral reefs. And no doubt humans will always have a negative relationship with the environment in the sense that we use the environment and we use it, um, we need to use the environment. This is where we live. But we need to somehow think about what we're doing to help to sustain that environment. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on around the world, and especially in Australia, that, are, that give us some optimism that, that we can get onto this. Let's hope that's the case and that many generations after us get to share in the Great Barrier Reef. Associate Professor John Pandolfi, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Darren, for that look at global warming. The herpes simplex virus has never had a great deal of notoriety. Most people actually carry some strain of herpes and only a small percentage of them suffer recurrent outbreaks. However, for these unfortunate people, life can be a living hell. Here's Lachlan Watmore with an in-depth report. Back in 2002, Diffusion was delighted to host, right here in the 2SER studios, Dr Bill Halford, an immunologist from the University of Montana, USA. Dr. Halford is a specialist in the study of herpes simplex virus and has recently come up with an idea for a vaccine for it. A small percentage of HSV-infected people suffer recurrent outbreaks, particularly those of genital herpes. 
And genital herpes is not much fun when you desire a fulfilling love life. Worst of all, genital herpes can actually kill a baby being born. If a woman is infected with HSV2 and is shedding virus particles during childbirth, an infant moving down the birth canal can thus contract neonatal herpes, which must be treated immediately because 50% of neonatal herpes cases are fatal. And of those children that survive, many suffer severe neurological damage due to the vulnerability of an infant's central nervous system to viral infection. Over Christmas, I had a chat with Bill Halford about herpes and its treatment. I began by asking him just how many strains of herpes are there? There are eight different herpes viruses that infect humans, and the ones we call herpes simplex viruses, um, type 1 and type 2, are two very similar viruses, almost identical. But basically, infection with, say, herpes simplex virus type 1 only protects you from subsequent infections with type 1, not, say, infection on a second exposure due to a herpes simplex virus type 2. So immunity to, to uh, simplex 1 will not give you immunity to simplex 2? Exactly. And that's true for many viruses, like uh, the common cold virus is a rhinovirus. There are hundreds of different types of rhinoviruses, so that's why you keep getting the common cold over and over. What's the actual difference between simplex 1 and simplex 2? It's so little that we have a hard time defining it. They both have 75 genes. They're arranged in the exact same way in the virus. But as far as the, I guess if you think about the, the agent that is transmitted, that is the virus particle, that they look slightly different to the immune system the outside, so there's slight changes in um, what the immune system sees. But that's really about it, as far as we know. And how prevalent is uh, herpes? Uh, you know, specifically HSV1 and HSV2, is it, you know, do many people have it? Yeah, the, the herpes virus of a group are amazingly prevalent. Some of the herpes viruses virtually every person in the world has. Case of herpes simplex virus type one, it approaches that probably. You know, we say conservatively that two out of three people in the world are infected with herpes simplex virus type one. If you actually go around and test people, it's probably more like about four out of five. Cool. And with herpes simplex virus type two, it appears to be more like about one out of five. So these are huge numbers. Billions, billions of people in the world are infected with herpes simplex viruses. And most people, for example, type one, most people acquire it before the age of six. So it's just that the people that are infected with it, um, well, typically that's HSV-1 or herpes simplex type 1, the one associated with cold sores. And probably for every one cold sore a person gets, they probably have 100 shedding events where they shed a little bit of infectious virus. And so when grandma comes over and gives her grandson a kiss, sometimes there's a little something extra in there. So grandson acquires HSV-1. Grandma just keeps on giving. Yeah. What's the current state of the art regarding herpes treatment? It's purely management. There are antiviral drugs. The, the general class of drugs is often referred to as acyclovir because that was the first drug in this class, but there's about three or four related drugs. And so people that get recurrent outbreaks, if they're clearly enough, can go to the doctor and get a prescription for this drug. And so when they feel an outbreak coming on, they can start taking it. And in some cases, that works beautifully. The people that, you know, really tuned into their bodies can start taking this drug and absolutely prevent all outbreaks. But that's probably only about maybe 1 out of 10 or 1 out of 20 people that really falls into that category. Most people that have the disease just don't go to the doctor, period. How long have people been working on a vaccine? Probably for as long as they've been studying the virus, but certainly um, since the 1970s. So about 30 years or so? Yeah. And what approach have people been taking up until this point? There's a variety of approaches. They're all based on the idea that since it is, you know, in a natural situation where a person is infected, 
once they acquire the virus, they have it for life. So it's a 60 or 70 year long infection, however long you live for. And so the vaccine approaches have all mainly been based on the idea that you absolutely don't want to establish a persistent infection with the vaccine. And so therefore, the approaches have been, say, to maybe take kind of the classic approach that's been used for a lot of viruses is you just grow up some virus and you somehow inactivate it with heat or uh, formalin and then inject that inactivated virus. So that's been tried and that does not work. Other more recent approaches now that we're into the age of genetic engineering uh, have been to isolate individual genes from the virus that encode some of the proteins that the immune system sees and then to grow up those proteins in large quantities and inject people with proteins. And those are called subunit vaccines. So that's been one of the most prevalent approaches. The third approach that people have tried is to um, you know, take a few of the genes out of the virus that are absolutely essential for it to complete its life cycle, so that is a replication defective virus, and then inject people with that, where the virus can infect the first group of cells, but there is no propagation in the body. What are some examples of the uh, subunits uh, of a virus in the case of HSV that people have been trying to use as a vaccine? people um, take the subunit vaccine approach, they usually ask the question first, you know, in the context of a natural infection, what is one of the parts of the virus that the body responds to most strongly? So like, for example, in HIV, that would be a protein called glycoprotein 120. And, but in the case of herpes simplex virus, it's a protein called glycoprotein D. So in particular, that has been made into a subunit vaccine and actually um, not only tested in animals, They'll test it in humans probably over the last decade. And why is working on a subunit vaccination inferior to a whole virus particle approach? Well, I think we're still kind of in the process of learning that. It's really only in the case of herpes simplex virus in about maybe 2002 that the results of the subunit vaccine study were published. And basically what the results said is that exposure to either the mock treatment or the subunit vaccine didn't really have much of a difference on whether you know, somebody was at risk for getting general herpes or not. There's a marginal effect, but very, very marginal. For example, like they could see a minor effect in women, but not at all in men. The problem with the approach is that a virus, of course, doesn't consist of one protein, but many proteins. So conservatively, if your body's only seeing 175th of the virus. But then the, um, I think one of the biggest issues is that the way you maintain protection against a virus is largely through your, I don't want to get too technical here, but uh, through your T lymphocytes. And the way your T lymphocytes see things that are foreign involves a certain processing pathway. And when you give somebody an injection of a protein like glycoprotein D, that protein doesn't really have access to the proper um, presentation pathway that T cells need to see the foreign protein. So you get more of a, you get an antibody response, but you don't really get a very good T cell response. And yet, in the case of viruses, it's really T cells that are the major protective factor. Whereas in the context of a real virus infection, you absolutely stimulate the T-cells very efficiently. I guess the simplest way to state it is that it's really naive to think that you could take a protein of a virus, put it into a person, and have that person make the same immune response that they make against the actual virus. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Um, and the fact of the matter is we've tested it so much over the last 20 years and proven it to not be true over and over again that we're now to the point where it's really time to move on beyond the subunit vaccines and try some other approaches. Okay. How do you propose to do that? I would say the simplest method, and it's remarkably simple, simple actually, is that in the case of herpes simplex viruses, we know that 
for starters, three-quarters of the infections with the, the wild-type virus, that is the, the virus that exists in nature, three-quarters of those infections produce no disease. So rather than completely disassembling the virus and taking out one subunit and trying to put it into a person and get protection, a very simple approach would be to maybe go into the virus and remove one or two critical genes that the virus needs to cause disease and then infect the person with that live attenuated virus. So you don't really have to guess whether or not the virus looks to the immune system like it naturally does because it's the same virus. So that should happen. Basically, you should do a good job mimicking the natural host response to the virus. All you're really doing is cutting away at the ability of the virus to propagate itself in the human to the point where you could actually get disease. So I guess maybe the, a, a clearer way to state that is that from the time a person's exposed to a virus until they actually see the symptoms of disease, generally you're talking about at least a seven-day period, maybe even 10 days. So if we can cut one or two things out of the virus, we can make it so the virus can propagate itself for two or three days, which stimulates the immune system, but not for the full seven or 10 days that you need to, need to get disease. How is this different from replication-defective uh, vaccines? So the replication-defective viruses don't really propagate at all. They, they, wherever you Say you get a, um, an injection somewhere in your skin, with a replication-defective virus. The virus never leaves that site. Wherever it gets injected, it infects some cells, but there's no real propagation. Whereas with a, a live attenuated virus, it actually propagates itself and makes copies of itself in the skin and actually spreads into the nervous system. And there, the nervous system establishes a latent infection that will stay with you for life. And, and probably the most important aspect in the case of herpes simplex virus where you need to m maintain immunity for, say, 50 or 60 years, is that 50 or 60, 50 or 60 years later, you will still be carrying that vaccine strain, which will presumably in the background be coming out and making its proteins periodically and re-stimulating your immune system that is boosting you. Whereas the replication-defective virus, it gets put into your body on, say, day one, and probably by day three or day four, it's gone. So you can only get ex your immune system only has a two or three day opportunity to see the proteins that herpes simplex virus makes, whereas with an attenuated virus, it could theoretically see those proteins for 50 or 60 years. Dr. Halford, is there any um, danger of the attenuated latent virus inside you mutating and actually becoming virulent as you get older? It's absolutely um, probably the biggest um, theoretical current concern that has held people back from trying to make live viruses as a vaccine against general herpes. I think, I, I guess I would say the weight of evidence argues against it because, again, you've got three billion people in the world who are walking around with fully virulent strains of herpes simplex virus in their body that never have any disease at all. So that means about half the population of the world is already in this status that we're theoretically worried about happening. But as far as the vaccine strains go, I think if you engineer them properly, that is if you actually delete large pieces of sequence from the virus, it would be um, incredibly unlikely that they could reacquire the gene sequences that they're missing and then become virulent. But I'd say in the worst case, you'd only be back to the situation we currently live in right now, where half the world's population actually has latent infections with virulent strains of herpes simplex virus.
What gene sequences are you thinking of chopping out? In particular, I think what we've found in the last 10 years is that viruses, in order to persist in the body, certainly in the case of the herpes viruses, these viruses need to make certain proteins whose whole function is to counteract the host immune system. That is, these viruses actively fight against the host immune system, which actually explains how it is that they're able to cause recurrent disease. So even though you make a very good immune response to herpes simplex virus, it carries with it about five or ten proteins. His whole job is to basically screw up the function of your immune system. So it's these genes, these immune evasion genes, they're called, that I'm looking at excising from the virus. And in particular, there's one that I focused on. It's a, a protein that is called ICP0, or infected cell protein zero. Um, this protein's whole job is to counteract the interferon response to the body, which is one of the most primitive responses your body makes to viral infections within minutes after getting infected with the virus, your body starts mounting the interferon response. Without the ICP-0 protein, herpes simplex virus is exquisitely sensitive to this interferon response. So as soon as the body responds to the virus, it really very quickly starts shutting down its replication cycle. Is there any danger that uh, this might work a bit too well, that the attenuated particles will be destroyed before they can give you a decent um, immunology? It's absolutely um, a concern that we could be starting, you know, by virtue in my research, for example, of focusing on ICP-0 mutants as a potential vaccine candidate, it's absolutely possible that these viruses could really be too attenuated and might not actually give us the type of immune response we need in humans. In animals, um, they actually give a remarkably potent immune response that resembles um, the immune response you get to the wild-type virus, despite the fact that they're so avirulent. But in the real world, um, in human clinics, it might not work that way. So that absolutely is a concern. But considering that we haven't ever tried a lot of herpes simplex virus vaccine before, I think it's probably appropriate to err on a side of caution. And then if it proves to be too attenuated, we can always go in and make other um, changes that are, say, less, that don't impair the virus so heavily. Dr. Halford, how difficult is it going to be to engineer this vaccine? The actual um, construction of the viral vaccine is very straightforward. It's working with technology that's probably 20, 25 years old. And so I've got a whole panel of uh, viruses like this in my freezer. So there's really um, the production of the virus and um, testing it is really quite straightforward. The biggest difficulty is simply getting the scientific community to consider the possibility that maybe we should actually start testing a lot of HSV vaccine in human beings. That's really the um, hurdle that I'm trying to clear right now. If you really think, it, think through the details here, there's, there's nothing particularly radical or dangerous that's being proposed, considering that, again, 4 billion people on this earth carry fully virulent strains of herpes simplex virus. So the idea of infecting someone with herpes simplex virus is simply going to change that number from 4 billion to 4 billion and one. Um, so I don't think that's the problem. It's just simply a matter of getting scientists and doctors to change their mindset about what they consider acceptable. Um, and that, it sounds simple, but in practice, um, it takes a long time to get people to change their mind about something that they've believed for 30 years. So Dr. Halford, how's your research going on this? You got plenty of funding for it? Um, well, I'm working on it, but it's a uh, it's sort of a new niche that I'm occupying because really my um, I guess the research that's led to you know the proposal that we consider this as a live vaccine is really sort of a it's an integration of immunology and virology, and historically those have been two completely separate sciences. So anyway, I guess the short answer to that question is um, no, I'm still in the process of um, getting funding for it.
Um, like most new ideas, I think initially it's met with a lot of skepticism. Um, so really, right now I'm in the process of trying to make clear to people that you know, this actually is a really promising avenue um, of research. How long do you think it'll take before you can come up with your vaccine before manufacture? Well, I think, I mean, I basically have in hand what I need um, to take to human clinical trials. There's still, um, you know, I still need to get some funding in order to further the animal tests that I already have. Because um, right now the, the safety and the efficacy or effectiveness data is both quite strong, yeah, are both quite strong. Basically, a few more things need to be done. So probably timeline, maybe um, with funding, six months to a year, and at that point, it would simply be a matter of asking what needs to be done to get this into clinical trials. In principle, I have the vaccine. Now it's just a matter of basically I've done my test with herpes simplex virus type 1, particularly a virus that lacks um, a functional copy of the ICP-0 gene. So now it's a matter of reproducing that mutation in herpes simplex virus type 2 and then testing type 1 and type 2 in parallel, because really the, um, the clinical concerns revolve much more around herpes simplex virus type 2 than type 1. Both are clinically an issue, but there's more concern about type 2 because it is the predominant agent that causes general herpes. Now what we have here is not just another vaccine, it's also a new approach to vaccine development moving away from the one-off temporary infection of an attenuated vaccine to the idea of a permanent yet non-virulent one that will basically propagate itself by periodically reproducing in numbers large enough to strengthen the host's immune response, yet small enough not to cause an outbreak of cold sores. Bill Halford's philosophy seems to be that of keeping the virus intact as much as possible and just removing a few proteins to prevent virulence while at the same time producing a much more comprehensive immune response. Other vaccines have gone for the attenuated approach, but very few have stuck around in your system to provide ongoing tech support. That was Lachlan Watmore talking to Dr Bill Halford about herpes and the tantalising prospect of a vaccine. Thanks once again for joining us on our summer series. Contributing to this week's show was Lachlan Watmore, Darren Osborne and Ian Wolfe. Today's show was also produced by Ian and Lachlan, up in the studios over at 2SER. We're broadcast all across Australia via the Community Broadcasting Network and you can find our podcast by heading to... www.diffusionradio.com I'm Jackie Pepper and I'll see you very soon for another great week on Diffusion. Pipes and chains and swinging hands Who's your daddy? Yes I am Bad cat came to play Now you can't run fast enough You best stay away When the pushers come to shove Throw back a bottle of beer
Tip top jitter, buggy brown eyed man, straight cat from Notre Dame's band. Cut me a savvy and you'll understand. Hit my veins, hot music ran. You got me in a sway, and I want to swing you down. 